I'm going to open us with a word of prayer, and then we can turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter, and we're going to begin chapter 2 this morning. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your love for us. We live in a world where we see the effects of sin all around us, Lord, not only in our own struggles and our own fight against the desires that still rear their heads in our hearts, but Lord, we see it all around us. We see it in death and illness and sickness. We see it in the world of unbelievers, but we see it in the world of your children. Lord, I pray that today you would encourage us. Many in this room have heavy hearts for a variety of reasons. Pray that today would be a day that you make your presence known. Lord, you're always with us. But at times, we can get lost. So I just pray that you would give us an assurance of your love and faithfulness. And I pray, Lord, that your word today would speak to our hearts. Pray that the things that we talk about would help us not just to think rightly, but to live rightly. And we ask all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we come to the end of one chapter and begin a new chapter, I always, I always realize that when the Bible was originally written, there were not chapters. So 1 Peter was a letter. It didn't have chapters and verses. That's all added in later, and I'm sure you know that. But in our English Bibles, we are transitioning between two chapters, but it's not really a transition. Everything is connected. And Peter was addressing a group of people, as I've said over and over again, who were enduring some real struggles, real trials. And yet the call to them wasn't to feel sorry for themselves or to wallow in self-pity at their poor lot in life that they were going through hardships and trials. Rather, the call was to think and live rightly in light of the great salvation we have. And the reality is, every single Sunday, we say the same thing. Either think differently or do something differently. That's the message of Christianity. Now, there's a lot more in that, but what you see over and over again is the Bible addressing us where we are, which is, we aren't perfect. And not in the secular sense of where people make themselves not feel really that guilty before a holy God and say, hey, everybody does something wrong. No, this is a sense where even though we are God's children, we understand we are a work in progress. The Lord began working at us the moment he saved us, and he will continue working in us until we are in his presence. But Peter is giving practical instruction of saying, here's what you need to do while you're walking the walk of faith. And as we saw in chapter 1, a lot of it does have to do with how you think. Verse 13, therefore prepare your minds for action. In other words, it's a battle to think rightly so that we can engage the fallen world in which we live and live with the hope of Jesus Christ always right in front of us. And ultimately, it's about holiness. Verse 15, Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. That's the clarion call of every pastor. Be holy, not just for ourselves, but for our congregations. And really, all of the rest of the book is showing us what holiness looks like. 
And particularly, I want to focus just as a brief way of reminder of what came at the end of chapter 1. The reality in verse 22 is a discussion that really had to do with the moment that we believed. Had a long teaching on that. Obedience is really, it's just our proper response to the gospel. And we understand that response was enabled by the Spirit of God. It wasn't just a human effort. It was God working in us. But the fact remains, when you respond rightly to the gospel, you're purified. Your sins are forgiven. And then you have a capacity to love. But what Peter was saying is there's a command to love. Fervently love one another from the heart. And this morning, we're really going to be tying into this particular aspect, looking at verse 23, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God. It was the Word, the Gospel, the very words of God that transformed us, that saved us. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. And really what we're studying this morning is about the word. The word that was preached to you, the end of verse 25. So follow along as I read the first three verses of chapter 2. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. This is a single sentence divided into three verses, but it's really showing us how to grow in holiness and love. It really is showing us why we come to church. We want to honor the Lord. That's why we're here. We want to learn more about what God says so that we can obey more. And what we have here is a particular context that would truly help us, specifically, fervently love one another. But it helps us in every other aspect of the Christian walk. Now, I broke this into three steps. I think it's a logical flow from the text, although because of the nature of things, I don't really like my wording. So I'm going to read it to you because I don't have any choice at this point because I've got to teach. But I think it captures what's here. So the first essential step for growing in holiness and love is this. Remove sinful practices. Remove sinful practices. There's this an introductory word, therefore. Therefore, putting aside, and it goes on, but therefore, really is tying into everything that we had just looked at in chapter 1. It's a direct tie-in, depending on who you say. It could go all the way back to the issues of holiness, and I think there's an aspect of that. But at the very least, it clearly is dealing with, as you'll see in the context, it's dealing with the reality that the word that saved us is still at work in us. It connects everything that he's saying with what we've already studied. And the instructions of this particular text are crucial. 
if we aren't following these things, it's going to be hard for us to move forward. In fact, the way he phrases it, if you can't do what's in verse 1, verse 2 is going to be impossible. And verse 2, as you'll see in a moment, is actually the primary imperative command of this section. But he makes it clear, therefore, putting aside, that's the action of this first part, putting aside. Now, in English, and I used to have a greater vocabulary because lawyers talk, and so you say the same thing over and over, you've got to come up with different words. But in English, you say putting aside, that doesn't sound very emphatic. It doesn't sound particularly dramatic to me, at least. And yet, the picture here is very... It is emphatic. It has the idea, and there's the imagery is of taking off filthy clothing, but not just in general, but almost, I read one commentator's, flinging it away from you. It's a picture of something so vile that you don't want it touching your skin. Now, I can think of a variety of circumstances in my life, and I won't try and articulate them to gross anyone out. But you can probably think of times where you realize, uh-oh, I can't believe that just got on me. And all you want to do is get it off. And you want to get those clothes as far away from you as you can because it's disgusting. And it's bothersome. And it's vile. Filthy or contaminated. And the picture of that phrase, putting aside, is literally just ripping it off and throwing it away as quickly as you can. You can't stand that being in your presence another second, and so you're aggressively taking steps as quick as you can to get it away from you. That is the urgency and the imagery of this. And what's being put aside, it's actually three groups of things, but there's five individual references. And it's important to go through them, but notice how comprehensive they are. All malice. All deceit and hypocrisy and envy. All slander. We're going to look at what each one of these things mean, but understand this is talking about something comprehensive. This isn't talking about a little bit of something. This is talking about getting rid of, putting away, flinging aside everything that would fit in any aspect of these categories. As I read through them, I know in my mind, in English, I just read this before I study and certain things pop out and I think I know what the words mean. And these aren't trickery here. But as I was reading and studying, someone made a comment on one of the things I was reading that made a, a lot of sense. These really are all specific attitudes directed at other people. In the context, it's talking about probably attitudes and actions that have a negative, harmful consequence to someone else. Putting it in the context of the church, if you have any of these attitudes or actions towards other people in the church, you certainly are not going to be fervently loving them. But in every aspect, this is comprehensive, and we'll start with this word malice. All malice. You're putting aside, you're flinging, you're running from anything that has anything to do with malice. Now, if you were to study this word, there's a sense in which it's very broad. 
And it could encompass many forms of evil and wickedness. But in our context, I'm persuaded that it really has to do with our attitudes and actions towards others. I just alluded to that. I think that's the context for this. And as one person stated, and I'll quote them, ill will toward others. Ill will toward others. In any way, thinking or wishing bad things would happen to other people. Now, you would think that doesn't occur, except that it must, or else we wouldn't be commanded to put it aside. Now, Peter is not in some way backhandedly insulting all these believers. He's not necessarily saying, all of you are doing this all the time. But what he's saying is, you've got to be on the lookout for this. And if you see any ill will bubbling up in your heart towards other people in the church, other people around you, then you've got to get rid of that. The reality check for us is just looking around on a Sunday morning. Who do we walk the other way to get away from? I can assure you, you can't walk the other way in heaven. I'm guilty of it too. The reality is, malice in any form is going to prevent us from exercising biblical love. It's going to prevent us from properly understanding the Word of God. So you've got to put it aside. You've got to take stock. If you've got ill will in your heart towards other believers, you need to start repenting now and asking God to change you now. But it's not just malice, this evil or wickedness that has this feeling towards others. It goes beyond that. And what you see in the next words, it's actually grouped as a three-pair, all deceit and hypocrisy and envy, But again, these are distinct. It's talking about comprehensive. If any of this is in your presence, get rid of it. Deceit is fairly easily understood. It's guile. It's falsehood. It's trickery. It's the backbone of the American economy. Well, that's a political statement. (laughs) But you understand and chuckle because you know that's almost considered normal. I'm just going to shave the truth. I'm going to get ahead. I'm going to do a little bit here and there. Trying to take someone to the cleaners, so to speak. Working things out so that you come out ahead by sort of chiseling other people. That's the specific context here. That shouldn't be the case in the church. Now, I did not do it. I've done it in previous times. But you can find over and over accounts of people that stole from other people in churches. Sometimes employees, but just sometimes church people who convinced other people to trust them. That's a photograph in the dictionary of what's being talked about here. Trying to take advantage of other people. And this type of deceit goes hand in hand with hypocrisy. We understand hypocrisy. In fact, as I have thought about this, every Christian at some point is guilty of hypocrisy. If we weren't, that would mean we had never sinned. Because each one of us would clearly say, don't do this, and then we've done it. Each one of us would say, no way, that is sin from the Bible, and then we say, "Uh uh-oh, we're guilty. 
But in this context, it's not talking about when you do something and you repent of it. It's talking about somebody that this is your pattern. And you're pretending to do one thing while all along you've got an ulterior motive that you're working out. You're hiding true motives behind an attitude of piety that says, I'm one of the group. I'm just trying to get along. There have always been hypocrites in religious circles. Jesus, Matthew 23, 25, and I found many, many more of these, but familiar language. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. They were the masters of putting on a religious show while they were unbelievers. But the point in the context of the church is if we have hypocritical tendencies, we need to remove them. We need to get rid of them. It's a hypocrite who's trying to deceive other believers, but it happens. Now, I'm not saying Christians can't be in business with each other, but church is not the place where you build your business. It shouldn't be. Will other Christians come to you? Of course. I do business with some people in this church, and it's great comfort. But they're not here hustling work. I remember the first church Debbie and I were members of, and we were much younger, and we joined a Sunday school class. And I remember, and when I say I remember, I have a vivid memory of this. I couldn't quote it exactly. But here's the gist of what happened. Talking to somebody else, they said, oh, did that couple invite you over for dinner? No, but we were new to the church and we're happy to, we'd love it. Well, if they do, they're trying to get you to be a part of their multi-level marketing scheme. Now, I don't know if they were sincere or not, but that's not why you invite people over in church. If you're doing that, that's the wrong motive. You're not hustling business from people. So you've got to fling away, get rid of all deceit, all hypocrisy. The third in this little part is envy. I read a lot about this, but some good descriptions. You hate to see good happen to other people. When other people come out ahead in the church, you resent it. You don't find yourself saying, praise the Lord for them. You find yourself saying, I wish it was me. How dare they? That's the third time they got blessed, and I'm still sitting over here in the corner. It doesn't bring you joy when Christians succeed. It makes you more frustrated and more angry. Now again, we were filled with these things as unbelievers. What Peter is just saying is, look, you've got to make sure, in light of the fact that you've been saved, in light of the fact that the Word of God transformed your heart, in light of the fact that God purified you, and you now are supposed to be holy as He is holy, and you're supposed to love one another... With a fervent love, if you bring to church malice towards others and deceit and hypocrisy and envy, you're never going to get anywhere. The last part is slander. All slander. This absolutely involves the words coming out of our mouths. And it really could be boiled down to this, speaking badly about other people. Running them down, 
If they did something good, minimizing it and talking it away. If they did something bad, proclaiming it from the rooftops. Or just flat out lying about people. As I think about things, at different times I'll speak with absolutes, but there's not many things that are accepted by Christians that are bad. Let me rephrase that. Christians seem to not be bothered by gossip. Let's put it that way. Gossip seems not to bother us. I'm not on social media for a lot of different reasons, so I don't have accounts, so I don't know how things work. But there's a reason the guys, and maybe there were women involved, that made Facebook are gazillionaires. Because it's the greatest way to spread gossip ever invented. Complete with photographs and videos. Now, can it do good? Of course it can. But our natural tendency, if we're not careful, is to defame other people. I read a commentator said something immediately. It resonated with my heart. And immediately I started thinking through, I probably have been guilty of this before. Something along these lines. Well, I'm going to share something, but it's just for us to pray. I'm just going to pray about this. But let me tell you what happened. You wouldn't believe what he did. Oh, it's terrible. Guess what? That's not a prayer request. That's slander. Even if it's true at times, you can defame. Well, i got to be careful. I'm a lawyer. By definition, slander and defamation from a legal sense have to be false or else you have a legitimate defense. The point is, you can slander people in a Christian context even by taking something true and making sure that it does the maximum damage. You know, Titus mentions, Titus 3.3, 3, Paul says this, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedience, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. If you wanted to summarize all these things we're supposed to get rid of, they're characterized by hate. Ill will towards other people. Tricking other people, deceiving other people with hypocrisy, being resentful of other people's good fortune or God's blessing in their life, talking badly about other people should never be characteristic of Christians. But Peter understands this has to be dealt with. And we're not immune from any of this. In fact, we should be taking stock. I know I certainly was thinking of where do I transgress these boundaries. And if you find any traits of that in your life, in any one of these, it's comprehensive. Get rid of it. Not most of it. Not a good chunk of it. All of it. So that's really the first step to get to what is the centerpiece of this section. Three essential steps for growing in holiness and love. Remove sinful practices. And and the second is this, desire proper nourishment. Desire proper nourishment. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, verse 2, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Now, 
when you look at something like this, comparing Christians to babies is not necessarily new in Scripture. But I want to clarify something, and and I assume it might run through your mind because it ran through my mind. Quite often, when Christians are referred to as babies, it's in a negative context. It's a rebuke. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says this at verses 1 and 2, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not able. Something similar occurred in the book of Hebrews in chapter 5, beginning at verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. So when you see the reference that Peter makes to infants and milk, I don't want you to misunderstand. He's not doing what Paul and the writer of Hebrews was doing. Peter is not rebuking the believers. In fact, he's making an entirely different picture with his analogy. This is all positive. And this has to do not just with new Baby Christians, this has to do with the most mature Christian in the room. Peter is using this imagery to talk to everyone. Peter's not rebuking them. So when he says, like newborn babies, what he's doing is he's creating a word picture based on common human understanding. Every one of us starts out as a baby. That's not an earth-shattering statement. And I know that probably not many of us, if any of us, I don't see any of us, have babies right now. We're a little bit north of that end of life. But most of us are parents, or at least we've been around babies. And what Peter is doing is drawing into the early stages of life where a baby has a single focus. I'm hungry. I want food. And what is a baby's food? It's his mother's milk. The baby really only knows one thing. There's no discussion. If you think about it, babies aren't distracted by life. They don't care about the final four. They don't care about politics. They don't care about Obamacare. They really don't care about anything in those early infant stages. They're just hungry. What do you hear? You hear crying. Feed me. That's it. They have a single-minded purpose. Just give me more milk. That's it. Nothing can satisfy the hunger except mother's milk. That's the imagery that Peter is going for. And so he says, like newborn babies... Long for the pure milk of the word. Long for. This is really the only imperative in that original sentence. Now the first verse 1 has the force of an imperative, but grammatically it's not. Everything is centered on that phrase long for. Crave, desire intensely. Again, it's not 
negative or derogatory. It's just saying you should have that focus. Every Christian should have that type of intense desire for the pure milk of the Word. I'm going to explain that a little bit, but it's really the Word of God. If a baby were deprived of milk for any length of time, you're going to know it. The baby can't rest. The baby can't be content. The baby, if anything, is going to be in a state of panic saying, what's happened? I need this. As believers, that's what we're supposed to have in relation to the Word of God. We're supposed to desire it more than anything. And I understand from my own life, it's not always the case. Because when we're older, we have the ability to satisfy ourselves with other things. But Peter is trying to get us to focus and realize our deepest longing should be for spiritual nourishment that only comes from one place. Now he uses phraseology that's translated pure milk. The idea is unadulterated not tainted, nothing added to it. There's no impurities. There's no things that would be harmful in this type of milk. We're a very sanitary world, but it sounds odd. The nearest thing I could come up with in our thinking is, what do you think of when you hear organic? Nothing's added to it. Now, that doesn't mean that. If you think it means that, you should read a little bit more goes back to that deceit, but that's another story. <laughs> but the point is, in this context, it's making it clear, if you come to the Word of God, there are no impurities. There are no additives that are going to trip you up negatively. You're not going to find anything harmful in the Word of God. There's nothing added to it. I couldn't help, as I was thinking of that, contrasting what God gives us and what Satan wants to give us. Jesus wasn't necessarily trying to give a theological discourse on Satan, although his truths about Satan are theological. But as he was rebuking the hypocrites, he said, You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks of from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, if you ingest that, that's all impure. It's going to defile you. It's going to harm you. But the pure milk, which is the Word of God, there's never anything that's going to impact you in a negative way. The challenge is, the Bible tells us to have a craving and desire for the pure milk of the Word. And all week long, if we're not careful, Satan is bombarding us with his poisonous concoction, which is the world system, with all of these allures and enticements. You can almost picture us swimming through the water and there's a bunch of bait with fish hooks in it and Satan's just waiting to snatch us.
And it's clear it's the Word of God. Pure milk of the Word. If you go back to 1 Peter 1, 23... He's talking about what saved us. For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. This is what saved us, but it's also what nourishes us now. Really, if you think about the Word saved you, but that's just the beginning. You need the Word until you are in the presence of the Word. You can never have enough of the Scriptures. It is inevitable when the Bible repeats similar themes over and over that you repeat yourself when you're teaching Scriptures. But one of the great dangers facing the Bible-believing church is that so much of what goes on in churches that claim to speak the truth of the Bible is not the pure milk of the Word... It's scripture to which has been added some human wisdom, some folksy thinking, good old-fashioned common sense, so to speak. And what you have is preaching that is no longer focused on the pure milk of the Word, but it's focused on the perceived needs of all of us. It's man-centered preaching. As we see elsewhere in the Bibles, they gather themselves teacher that basically they tickle their ears. Most of what passes for evangelicalism in America is focused on something other than the pure milk of the word. In fact, what you see, and this is the danger that scares me because I know a lot of you read books that come out from reputable publishers that have big name authors attached to it that are doing the wrong thing. They're adding to the scriptures. Well, we got to help you out. We got to give you something that you need because the scriptures only go so far. It's a complex world. Goodness, that was 2000 years ago. We got to give some updated things. We got to help you understand things better. In fact, we've got to understand these in a whole new way because we got a new generation, new people. You've got to run away from that. That's not the pure milk of the word. You have in front of you spiritual food, which is the Word of God. I feel like I say it all the time. That's why we praise the Lord for somebody like Pastor Steve, who for 35 plus years doesn't have any other trick in his book other than to take this and tell you what it says. That's it. He is one of the best preachers that I've ever heard But this isn't a giant place. There are people saying nothing that have tens of thousands showing up every Sunday. But you don't want to be there. That's not going to grow you. He sometimes jokes that he can't do anything else. He doesn't need to do anything else. Now, he means it in the context of any other career. (laughs) Um, If you need your plumbing fixed, don't call Steve. But if you need your plumbing fixed, don't call me either. (laughs) Here's the point. You don't need anything else. It pains me, and I'm guilty of it at times, but it pains me when I hear people looking for something other than that in church. Now, do we need fellowship? Of course we do. Absolutely. Don't misunderstand me. 
But when it comes to what we do on Sunday morning, the elders of the church are never going to go away from that. It's the preaching of the Word. And we've had people, well, can't we do this on a Sunday morning? And it's not bad things, but the answer is always the same. No. No. Because when you come, what you need is spiritual nourishment. You may think you need 50 other things, but what God says is the greatest need is what we should be craving and longing for. It's the pure milk of the Word. You receive Sunday after Sunday from Pastor Steve spiritual food of the highest order. You don't need anything else. Now, what does the Word do? Why should we crave it? There's a practical reason. So that by it, you may grow in respect to salvation. In other words, if you ingest, if you consume pure spiritual milk, just like a baby does, inevitably you will grow. The Word will transform you. We grow up by the consumption of spiritual nourishment. Again, churches are full all over the place that are really just trying to help people feel better about the coming week. They're really just trying to help people feel a little bit better about waking up on Monday and going to work. And I hope that when you come to Lakeside and you hear teaching from the Word of God, you feel better on Monday. But the goal is to tell you what's in the Scripture. We trust that if you consume the right thing, if you're born again and you have the Spirit of God indwelling you, He will grow you. I know it can be a temptation at times to want to manipulate things. You want to see certain behavior from people and so you start getting into the idea of how can I manipulate people to do this. We certainly can do that as parents. We can do that in our workplaces, but we can also wind up doing that in the church. And if we're not careful, we get focused on behavior and how do we bring about the behavior and we miss the big picture, which is that really this is about becoming like Christ. And we don't have to manipulate people. The Pharisees manipulated people. They had a lot of people doing, quote unquote, the right thing, marching their way to hell. I think that's why Jesus says that there's going to be a lot of people one day going, Lord, Lord, didn't I? Didn't I? For you to be all that God wants you to be in respect to holiness, in respect to love... You have to be drawn to the right nourishment. Don't go to self-help books. Don't get caught up in TV commentary of wise, secular people that are going to tell you how to make life better. Don't get caught up in Christian self-help. Forget regular self-help. There's so much in Christian publishing that is manipulative foolishness. I've read that especially in regards to marriage read some horrible things that are very popular amongst Christians, recommended by Christian churches that should know better. You never need anything 
that God hasn't provided in the Word. If you ever find yourself saying, well, I can't do that, that's not true. And that's not the Lord telling you that. He has given us all we need for life and godliness right here. Now, there's a third step for growing in holiness and love. First, remove sinful practices. Second, desire proper nourishment. Third is remember God's goodness. There's a sense in which putting away everything is looking forward. Get rid of all of this filth. Don't wear those filthy rags another day. And the desire is right now. We should be having this desire for the word. This is really the third part of this is really sort of looking backwards. Like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Verse 3, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Now the word if here in context isn't meaning, well, maybe some of you have and maybe some of you haven't. Really what it's saying is since. There's some translations that do that. It's the type of condition that is assuming this has occurred. There's not two classes of Christians. Those who have tasted the goodness of the Lord, the kindness of the Lord, and those who haven't. Every believer has in some manner tasted the kindness of the Lord. So when he says if, again, it's not, well, maybe this hasn't happened to you. If you're a believer, it has happened to you. And this idea of you've tasted the kindness of the Lord really is borrowing imagery from Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The idea is that if you are born again, you have experienced God's kindness to you, his goodness to you, his mercy to you. Certainly, we experience this in the fact of being born again. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. If you know Jesus, that's enough praise for the rest of your life. We've tasted his kindness by the fact that we can pray and he hears our prayers. For example, in 1 John 5, 14 and 15, this is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. Again, this isn't a blank check to get whatever you want. I always remember as a kid, I prayed for 100 hamburgers and I didn't get them. <laughs> I really did. I just wanted 100 hamburgers. But in the context of the will of God, I read a lot of cartoon, uh, comic books, and there was a guy that had 100 hamburgers on a plate, and I thought that would be nice to have. Um, anyway, the point is, God does hear our prayers. He listens to us. We've tasted the kindness of the Lord in the fellowship we have with each other, of people that care about us. On and on it goes. The point is this. You ought to long for the word that enables you to grow more in part because you understand how good it is to walk in fellowship with God. Particularly the longer you've been saved, it's good to occasionally stop and just have a praise session where you just thank the Lord. That you thank the Lord that you were saved.
that you thank the Lord that he saved you in spite of you. That you thank the Lord for all the blessings you've had. And I have been through dark times. I understand at times, if we're not careful, we can get overwhelmed by the darkness. But even in the darkness, part of coming to church is God shines the light on us again. And we realize, wait, it's not really dark. We have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And we, of all people, can understand that God is still showing us kindness every day. It's supposed to encourage us to desire the Word even more, the pure milk of the Word, knowing that how God has blessed us and been kind to us in the past, He's going to bless us and be kind to us in the future. Not always in the exact same way, not always in the exact same circumstance, but we understand that God is faithful. If you're His child, He is never going to leave you nor forsake you. So therefore, we can put aside those sinful practices and attitudes towards other believers or anyone else for that matter. And we can be reinvigorated to understand that when we come to church, we're doing the right thing because this is where we're going to get the pure milk of the Word. Certainly you get it in your own daily Bible reading and other times, but on Sunday morning you can praise the Lord every time Pastor Steve steps behind that pulpit because borrowing imagery, God's basically turning on the spigot of milk. In fact, most times he's turning on a fire hydrant of milk and we... We can't even drink it all. But we praise the Lord for that. Because the God who's been good to us in the past is going to be good to us until we're in His presence. Please join me as I close our time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your goodness to us. And I thank You for the sufficiency of Your Word. Lord, every single one of us can be tempted to think we need something more. And yet you've provided all that we need in the scriptures. They are truly pure milk, Lord. That is the nourishment that will enable us to grow. Lord, each one of us still battles against the flesh. And I pray, Lord, to the extent that we do a self-examination, we see malice and deceit and hypocrisy, and envy, and slander in our hearts, and our practices, that you would help us to walk away from it immediately. And Lord, I pray that as we've prepared ourselves, that you would enable us to truly consume the Word. You provide us each week abundantly through the preaching of Pastor Steve. I pray today that we would hear, and we would absorb the nourishment we need from the pure milk that comes from you. We thank you, Lord, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.